Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Dan Navruzzi and Joanne Spadigam. A big week of central bank meetings this week again, um, and other things too, driving markets. Uh, But perhaps let's start with the central bank meetings. Uh, And Jan, I think uh, probably the US has been the the bigger driver of the market moves this week. So let's start there. Um, We're recording this on Thursday, so we had the Fed meeting yesterday. Um, All in, it probably wasn't the most exciting meeting, particularly compared to other ones that we've seen in in this kind of hiking cycle. Um, What would you say was the the key takeaways, really, that that we learned from yesterday's Fed meeting? That's right. It wasn't the most eventful meeting. And uh, the Fed, as expected, left rates unchanged. Uh, They really didn't tweak with any of the parameters of continuous tightening or uh, barely made any substantial changes to the uh, to the statement that they released alongside the decision. So, uh, I mean, we expected the statement to have some counterbalancing uh, aspects, and it did. The, for example, the reference to kind of growth switched from solid to strong, but it, on the other hand, uh, they also added a more financial to financial and credit conditions continue to tighten. So, yeah, they're acknowledging the fact that yields have been moving up despite them remaining on hold, whether it is for other uh, issues, uh, supply or any other like kind of you know non-monetary policy reasons, they acknowledge that. So it was a it was a very much so a counterbalancing uh, up change to the statement. The Q and A was you know nothing too substantial. I think Chair Powell you know did a great put a, put in a great deal of effort to keep it relatively straightforward and plain and not give too many tidbits. You know, there's obviously not thinking about. Uh, cutting rates, which almost reminds me of the time when they were not thinking about thinking about uh, raising rates or running down the balance sheet. Uh, so overall, I think the market should be focused on what's coming up for December. He, uh, they, of course, did not shut down the path to another hike this year. We don't think that's going to happen. Uh, all eyes will be on the next two CPI, next two labor reports. The first one is coming tomorrow, so on Friday. Uh, we're a little bit below consensus on that one. But even in CPI, we see like 0.3 uh, for both months, which is just brings you down just on the 4% on an annualized rate. So, you know, not quite target, but not really screaming, accelerating, or they have to do more as well. So I think the Fed's approach right now will be to stay on hold for a little bit. They're not going to close that door. Even in December, they might leave the door open for, we might have to do more. Maybe the dots might show that uh, one few cut next year, implying that they might, you know, that could imply that they plan on cutting less or hiking another time. Uh, you know, we just don't know what the path will be. But I think at this stage, it looks like the hiking to us looks like the hiking cycle is pretty much reaching its uh, zenith. You mentioned um, supply and and Paul kind of referencing the impact that that has potentially had. Um, on the long end of the curve. I just wanted to pick up on that because I think that that played a bigger role as well in terms of the moves at the long end of the curve, perhaps in this week's refunding announcement, which actually in the end perhaps turned out to be more important for market sentiment, I suppose, than the Fed meeting was. That was a surprise, I guess, in in the kind of bullish direction, let's say, for yields. Can you talk us through, A, why that was a surprise, and B, 
you know, whether you think the market reaction was was the right one and the kind of direction of travel from here. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, contrary to what most primary dealers, uh, you know, from like the from like the distributions that I've seen, uh, I'm going to like on, on Bloomberg or so, and kind of like the feedback that you get from Treasury. I think contrary to what most dealers uh, recommended or had their in their forecast, Treasury actually decided to readjust the increases in coupon auction sizes. As a reminder, in August we had received. Uh, a little bit larger than what people were anticipating in uh, in, in auction size increases because this, you know initially was a large stage of funding through bills, but now with QT going on with deficits remaining fairly high, uh, that issuance has to shift into coupons as it can't be constantly. We can't keep ramping up constantly uh, treasury bills. So uh, so because of that, treasury might have noticed that long end yields sold off. In fact, they did point that out. Maybe they're a little bit worried that, you know, the discussions of term premium came back. So they wanted to address that issue. And what they did was, instead of increasing the 10-year uh, note by $3 billion, they increased it by $2 billion. Instead of bumping up the 20-year bond by a billion, they left it flat. Instead of increasing by $2 billion, the 30-year bond was increased by only $1 billion per month, right? So, uh, so you know, when you kind of look at that, it, it doesn't really scream a crazy amount of changes in issuance. It's only... You know, those are just like nine billion over over a quarter. So, in the scale of what Treasury issues each month, it's not that much. But uh, they also said that February is likely going to be the final uh, set of increases in coupons. We highly suspect that's the case, especially if we're right in our forecast, uh, in our deficit forecast. Uh, but you know, that certainly helped markets feel a little bit at ease that there might not be supply indigestion. If we change our, you know, I, I was looking at what our estimates would be. So we basically assumed that similar auction size increases would come through the, you know, all the way through like the third quarter of the year, at least through Q2. But now if you kind of strip those out, leave more treasury forecasts, lower the uh, the quarterly changes to what we got last quarter, it actually comes down to something like $450, $500 billion of, uh, of fewer, uh, of less than gross, gross supply. So it's not nothing. But like I said, I just don't think, uh, you know, when I plug my deficit estimates and uh, issuance estimates and what, what's coming up in maturities and assuming QT continues, it just seems very, very hard to be able to uh, issue at this level without actually either ramping up bills massively or kind of like resuming increases. But in the near term, like you said, it certainly helped uh, alleviate markets kind of worries and we rallied in a pretty substantial fashion. Maybe it was just because people were expecting a little bit more supply, you know, like the steepener is a popular trade, uh, selling long end is a pretty popular trade. So I guess positioning was pretty short going to this thing. And this is kind of like an unwind that we're seeing uh, follow through today as well. I, you know, we've had almost basically almost a, a 30 base point rally in the long end. So it's a very, very substantial move. Swap spreads are, uh, are kind of widening. So treasuries are performing pretty well in the long end. So the buyback, uh, the, the main takeaway from the buybacks is that issuance will be lower, which should support risk assets in the near term, which should support uh, uh, treasuries in the near term. But I, but I think it's important to keep in mind to not over uh, over exaggerate how much the impact of this is. You know, we're still getting a lot of supply and uh, QT is still going through and deficits. If anything, I think the risks are skewed towards a larger deficit rather than a smaller. Other than that, not much in details. Uh, they mentioned that bill sizes will come down a little bit lower. We most likely got in December. We most likely could have uh, uh, kind of like figured that out from the financing uh, estimates that came out earlier in the week. Uh, they said the buybacks 
are pretty much a go. I, I would imagine in February, they just give a timeline for what they're going to look like. Uh, and you know, those should be kind of like conducted accordingly. We'll get like a, a timeline basically of uh, what they will buy each, each month, each week. They haven't said that, but all the other parameters seem to be pretty much set in stone now. So uh, that's the main thing. We're pretty good for risk assets right now, but it is funny how it looks like the Fed wants to keep financial conditions tight. So they're trying to do nothing and, uh, you know, hope that longer term rates go up. On the other hand, Treasury doesn't like that, of course, because they finance themselves at a, at a higher rate. So they're being a little bit more reactive to uh, try to bring those rates down. So it's like interesting uh, countervailing forces. And uh, moving away from the U.S., I'm going <laughs> to take it away from here and switch it right back here with UK. Not only we had the Fed, but we just had the BOE as well. Uh, I don't know. They left the rates unchanged, as we expected. And uh, I guess, what, what did we learn? Kind of like, give, give, give the same rundown like I did for the Fed. <laughs> Honestly, you know, we could probably repeat what, what you said for the Fed. I mean, thankfully, when it comes to the Bank of England, this too was a, a relatively uneventful meeting. It's the first meeting, certainly for the last three, I think, where, you know, market pricing has been very consensus heading it. And the last um, two, the September meeting and, and um, the meeting before that, it was very kind of 50-50 of, of what the bank would do. Whereas this time around, you know, it seemed like everybody was on the same page and expecting unchanged rates, which in the end is is what they delivered. Um, with a 6-3 vote, so everyone who voted for unchanged rates at the last meeting continued to do so. Um, and Sarah Breeden, John Cunliffe's replacement, also folded into the majority for, for unchanged rates. So that too was, was very much as expected. It was an updated uh, or it was one of their quarterly meetings so we got the monetary policy report and the updated projections um they were very marginally revised lower um but but again nothing that would be hugely market moving within that i think broadly speaking the meeting itself struck a kind of very balanced tone you had some dovish elements like the fact that they didn't hike um, the fact that the projections were were kind of revised marginally lower, but you also had some hawkish elements. Um, you know, they emphasized many times, I guess, kind of like the Fed, you were saying, Dan, that, you know, it's too early to think about rate cuts. They talked about rates remaining at these levels for an extended period of time that was added into the um, into the minutes. Uh, they talked about the skew of risks on their forecast still being to the upside. They talked about the kind of bias in terms of the way that they see uh, rates evolving in the near term, you know, that risk is very much skewed to the upside as well. Um, but all in, I think, you know, if you look at the market reaction, that that tells you all you need to know, really, this was a, a broadly balanced consensual meeting. And actually, UK rates have pretty much done a round trip since the 12pm decision and the end of the press conference. Now, that comes alongside a kind of monster rally that we'd already had in the day. Um, but I think that was really being driven by by global factors. And as you said, Jan, the kind of combination of yesterday, so Wednesday's refunding announcement and the you know Fed that, that didn't surprise by hiking or a, a somewhat dovish Fed um, triggered a, a rally in global fixed income and that has continued. So I don't think today's rally in the UK is really much about uh, particularly dovish BOE, although I'm sure there was a bit of kind of risk premium in there when it comes to the BOE, you know, we can never be super confident that that they're not going to surprise us. And so perhaps some of that is being priced out now. But yeah, I really don't think 
or I should say, I think the market's right in not reacting particularly strongly to anything that we heard today, because I don't think we learned all that much new uh, and it was fairly balanced. And, uh, you know, all of the lack of fireworks, did any of that change your base case around rates in the UK at all? <laughs> it would probably be a little bit inconsistent if I were to say that we had changed our base case after um, a, a somewhat boring meeting. So no, um, on the rate side, our base case remains that we, ex you know, we think this is the peak now. Um, and although, as with the Fed, the BOE kind of left the door open to further tightening, I think we would have to see data surprising to the upside for kind of further tightening to, to be delivered. And, and that isn't our base case. Um, so we think the peak is in um, and rate cuts will begin in August um, in 50 basis point clips. So we have 50 bit cuts in August and November in 2024 for the UK. Um, I guess somewhat interestingly, it felt like Bailey and the MPC were kind of validating market pricing in terms of if you look at their projections that they conditioned on the market rate assumption. Uh, but it's worth noting that that market rate assumption, um, the rate profile is quite different to what's being priced in. If you just looked at rates today, for example, um, you know, they had now we have not that far off kind of 70 basis points of, of easing priced in for next year. Um, and actually the pro rate profile that they were using had had probably, um, you know, closer to half of that almost. So in some ways they were validating a more hawkish profile than what the market is pricing in now. Um, but we've long been of the view that the market is still underpricing the, the risk of kind of quite relatively aggressive, I suppose, easing next year, not just in the UK, but I think this is a view that we've shared um, across the, the US and the Euro area as well. And so, you know, with sort of 70 basis points being priced into 2024 in terms of easing, that still feels a little bit low versus our base case of 100 basis points of cuts. I guess the other thing to add in terms of our base case is just that we didn't and still don't expect any tweaks to quantitative tightening. Um, there's been lots of discussion, particularly, I think, as there's a been a, a kind of increased focus on the government's debt servicing costs, which QT obviously contributes quite heavily to, but B also as curves have steepened up and, and long ends have really led the recent rise in, in yields. There's been kind of increasing speculation that the BOE may look to skew their sales towards the shorter buckets. Um, we'd long been of the view, and I think we even spoke about this last week and, and certainly in other podcast episodes, that that was quite unlikely. Um, a, because the BOE doesn't take into account the kind of cost of QT from a government funding perspective in its monetary policy decisions. Um, B, because you know, and hawks and doves across the MPC have long shared this view that actually QT is, a, you know, really, if you listen to them, they think it's been a resounding success. They think it's had almost no market impact um, and it's kind of going as smoothly as they would have hoped, which makes it difficult to sort of rationalize a change if that's your party line. One of the kind of guiding principles of QT is that they want to conduct sales in a very predictive manner and therefore you know changing or tweaking operational details whether it be the size of the buckets or the way in which you sell across the curve etc i would argue kind of 
uh, undermines that predictability as as a guiding principle of of active sales. And really, you know, we didn't learn that much on QT today. I wasn't expecting to, but there was a, a question, you know, close to the end of the press conference in which Ramsden really reinforced those, those points, or certainly the latter two of those points. He didn't talk much today about how they're not all that concerned about the cost to the treasury of, of the QT that they're doing, uh, but they have talked about that at length previously. So um, our base case remains that any tweaks on QT are, are very, very unlikely, and, and the hurdle for that is, is very high. Uh, but even with that, you know, markets have been rallying a ton, uh, not just in the U.S., but also in the U.K. We're pretty much reaching uh, recent lows in, in yield ranges. And what do you make out of that? Yeah, I mean, guilt yields have been somewhat range bound. I mean, it's been a relatively wide range, I suppose, in a historical context. But really, if you look at, you know, 10 year guilt yields, for example, we've remained within this kind of 425 to 460-ish uh, yield range for the last couple of months. And, and regular listeners will know that that 4.6% has long been our kind of fair value target for 10-year gilts, which in the end has proved to be a sort of resistance level or an anchor, if you like, for, for yields. Um, and I still think it's going to be difficult for us in the near term to break out of that range. You know, when I think about the things that have been driving us to kind of reach the peak and come back down again it's it's all been about this sort of higher for longer narrative markets really internalizing that and i think if we learn anything from the central banks this week that's not changing anytime soon even if we expect you know deeper cuts in the markets pricing in or a, a bigger pivot at some point next year i think it's still much too premature to to be thinking about that really um, and then, you know, at the longer end of the curve, you have this kind of supply narrative and, you know, perhaps the refunding announcement this week, Jan, as you went through, provided a bit of bullish steam for the market. But really, it doesn't change the overall picture that there's still plenty of supply to take down next year. Deficits are going to be high everywhere. Um, and across the euro area, the UK and the US, even if we're talking about an easing in policy rates, uh, we're not talking about a, a meaningful shift on the QT front. In fact, in, in some places, well, in the UK and in the euro area, we think uh, we'll be talking about an acceleration of QT next year. So for us to break out of this kind of range that we've been in, I think you need to see a meaningful change on the supply side, which I don't think there's a kind of catalyst for in the next couple of weeks. You know, with the BOE out the way, we'll be looking forward to the autumn statement in the UK. But I think markets would be wrong to kind of take any read across from um, the refunding announcement from the US in terms of what it might mean for the remit, uh, for the guilt remit in, in the autumn statement. Um, or you would need a, a significant change in, in central bank rhetoric. And I, I don't think that central banks this week have kind of set us up for that in the near term. So I would expect us to, to remain, you know, in the near term within this kind of range, like I say, albeit a, a wider range than you perhaps be used to over the last 10 years, but but still within, within that range. And so we hold 4.6% as that kind of resistance level, let, let's say, in 10-year in gilts. Anyway, enough on guilt, I think. <laughs> we'll have plenty of time to, to discuss that range in, in future weeks. Um, I guess, a, you know, a, thinking about Europe, one of the other uh, drivers of, of this kind of rally back down in yields this week has been um, 
inflation, although it feels like a lifetime ago already at the beginning of this week that came in um, lower than expected. We obviously had, were set up for that in the end with, with the downside surprises on the national prints, but um, the kind of uh, euro area print also came lower than expected. Um, Joanne, does this have any implications for our view, the way that you're thinking about how the ECB might react to that, for example? So the euro area print uh, seems like a lifetime ago now, but it did come in around 20 basis points lower than uh, markets expected. So at 2.9 versus 3.1 expected. We did get early sight of this, like you said, Imogen, with the regional prints on Monday, leading to a bit of a rally. Um, but I do think in terms of what it means for our view, I think it very much supports this idea that we could actually see ECB rate cuts coming in even sooner than pricing for markets. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we would have been the outlier in kind of talking about March um, cuts. Uh, the market before the ECB meeting only had around two or three basis points in cuts priced into the March meeting. And right now that looks more like 10 basis points. So we're definitely seeing an increased attraction in the idea that rate cuts could come earlier. And markets have actually also shifted their pricing such that around 90 basis points in cuts is being priced into the European market at this stage versus our 100 basis point cut expectation for next week. So definitely think that the European inflation data is going in the right direction um, to kind of support our view and that growth similarly also supports that kind of idea that cuts could come uh, potentially earlier than markets expect. Away from cuts then, what about the other kind of policy tools? I mean, as is now customary with the ECB, soon after the meeting and after we'd recorded the pod last week, there was an ECB sources article talking about, you know, insights into when we might see announcements on balance sheet reduction, MRR, etc. Has any of that changed what, what you're thinking going forwards? Yeah, so the sources article seemed to kind of I talk about all the things the ECB didn't really want to talk about during the actual meeting, uh, with both PAP and MRR kind of flagging up that. Um, in terms of PAP, they've noted that they will start discussing it in um, the start of 2024. I think it's fairly clear that there are unofficial discussions taking place, even though the official discussions will only take place at the start of next year. And that's fairly in line with kind of the timeline we foresee. So our expectation is that PEP will be brought forward to mid-2024 with a gradual reduction there. And I think that as well is in line with kind of the sources article, that gradual reduction in PEP, so uh, a kind of phased approach there versus a full kind of roll-up at the start. Um, in terms of the minimum reserve requirements, there also is this idea that we had that the spring operational review would be where that would be discussed. And that does seem to be sort of confirmed by the ECB sources article last week. So I think really what we wanted was a confirmation from the ECB that our timelines made sense. And, and clearly they do and uh, have been confirmed by ECB sources now. What about on the remuneration of government deposits? I think that there's been over the past couple of months, lots of confusion between like MRR and then what it, this separate tool around the remuneration of government deposits. Do you think we could see an imminent shift there? So the government deposits is uh, fairly interesting just because there's not really been too much talk about that uh, recently um, and really wasn't mentioned at all at the ECB meeting last week. But it definitely does seem that um, there is some discussion in the ECB about it, with the ECB last week really a bit scared and spooked by the markets being volatile to actually shift anything on that regard. Uh, again, I think this will likely be 
kind of revise in the operational framework review next year. I think that, you know, there's a lot of questions about what does a shift in policy there mean for swap spreads. Um, I do think Germany is a good example in this case where the Bundesbank has already shifted the remuneration on government reserves from Astra minus 20 to zero. And the impact of that has been quite minimal so far. We've not really seen a big widening in swap spreads on the back of that. So I think it'll be fairly similar if the ECB does as well decide to shift that. Um, I think what, what as well is important to note is that we've had a fairly big move out of government deposits over the last year. So around 200 um, billion in that. And there's not really been, again, a pronounced impact on swap spreads. So I don't really feel like this will be the kind of driver of swap spreads for next year and when any shift takes place, if any. Okay, great. Let's leave it there for this week. Um, thank you both for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for listening in. And just a reminder, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.